Oprah Winfrey, a modern wizard. And when she doesn't have the answer, she'll get wizards on her program and promote their books. Dear Abby, magicians who will write their encyclopedias and give you all the answers to everything. Now, that doesn't mean they don't have things that you can learn. You can learn from things there. But those are not your ultimate sources of truth if they don't know the God of all truth. And to make them your authority, listen, is to put a certain number on your forehead. Six, six, six. The number of a man. Remember, baptism marks you out to be the people of God. But Babylon represents the kingdom of man. So beware of the wizards of Babylon. Revelation 18.23 By Babylon's sorcery, all the nations were deceived. Not just one, but many. Okay, So I think that that, that fill up what we need to do here. Beware of the wizards of Babylon. I think you should have everything that you need. Right? Beware of, yes, the wizards, space, of, space, Babylon, period. Now that brings us to page 17, morning session 2, Daniel 2, verses 24 to 49, under the theme, there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. Here we've seen the futility of the wisdom of Babylon. The king dreams, the leading intellectual lights cannot interpret the dream. The king orders the destruction of all the Chaldean wise men and remember that Daniel and his friends are linked with them. And so they go with the whole bunch. Daniel pleads for an opportunity and he prays and then was the secret revealed to Daniel in a night vision. God alone can reveal the deep and secret things. His very mind lesson, remember, the church is the repository of Holy Scripture. We don't know everything about God, and we must be humble in using this book, but God gives sufficient information so that we might live in the world and challenge the world's unbelief and practice the way of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does Daniel do with the knowledge, and what is that knowledge? And most of you are interested in what that knowledge is. We'll get to that here. This is the introduction to the prophetic portions of Daniel. Let me mention a couple of books on the table. By this, Hopefully, Carrie, by the time we're done, all the books will be promoted, at least the ones that I've read or know of. Now, I recommend this book, Last Day's Madness, with a certain amount of reservation. Uh, I think Gary DeMar has done an excellent job refuting many of the false views of prophecy today. And I think he does a decent job defending what's called a preterist view, a view that the prophecies speak of things regarding Christ and His coming. I think, unless he has changed things in this revised version, he is inexplicably weak when it comes to dealing with the physical, bodily return of Christ. He believes that, and he believes there's a consummation, a new heavens, a new earth, but he seems to be, with his post-millennialism, more fascinated with all these things that are going to happen in the Gospel age. But even given some of those reservations, this is a helpful critique of some of the kooky ideas around. And then also Gary DeMar's book, End Time Fiction, which is a specific critique of the left-behind theology. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I want to cover prophecy with you this week. I don't want Orthodox Presbyterians to be left behind in their understanding of prophecy. So Gary DeMar will help you a bit with that. So those are a couple of books on prophecy that are given that will be useful to you. Okay. So now we come to what Daniel does with his knowledge. This is an introduction to the prophetic portions of Daniel, and it's further developed, this material, in chapter 7 and following. And we'll cover some of that, God willing, on Thursday and Friday morning. Now in verses 24 through 30, remember this is international language. It is the secular world that's meant to listen to this. The secular world is meant to hear what the Word of God says. We're not monks in a monastery speaking to one another only or sometimes like monks in some monasteries, not speaking to anybody ever. We're meant to speak to the world. And this illustrates that, the language of Aramaic that's used. Now, in verses 24 through 30, watch how Daniel serves and glorifies his God. So Daniel, after they prayed, goes to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and said thus to him, Don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. 
he immediately seeks to put his knowledge to use to protect the wise men and God's people. He is to be salt and light. So Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king. And I'm sure he was sweating bullets as well over this. Here's somebody that maybe can help. And he said thus to him, and notice, of course, how humble this man is. Notice how self-effacing he is. I have found a man of the captives of Judah. No mind that it was Daniel that knocked on his door and said, Hey, we're here. We can help out. I have found a man of the captives of Judah. Remember me when you give out promotions, O king, who will make known to the king the interpretation. And in verse 26, the king answered, and you've got to imagine what this must have been like. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. Now this is the king speaking to him, and this was a name that he used. Are you able to make known to me the dream which I've seen and its interpretation? He is incredulous. These are the hoary-headed wise people of Babylon, the men with many degrees after their name. This is a boy of 16 to 17 years of age. You're able to do that? Don't you love the way God loves to confound the wisdom of the mighty? I love it. I just think it is great. Now, I am not a proponent of homeschool in principle as a matter of orthodoxy. So don't misunderstand me. We have a son who's going to be in a public high school. Some of you may want to throw tomatoes later. We have a son in a secular college, a son going to a Christian's college, and we homeschool too. So that will give you some idea of where we are. But i got to admit, I just love it. When every year, you can almost expect it now, National Spelling Bee or National Geographic Geography Bee. And it is the homeschoolers, mostly homeschoolers brought up in Christian homes. You know why they went to Geography Bee? Only Christians can really appreciate geography. Why is this stuff here to begin with? That little kid knows more about geography at his age than I'll know my whole life. But he knows it's God's world. And don't you love it when the media... I, always, I listen to these. National Spelling Bee was held in Colorado Springs and the winter was... And I'm waiting to listen. And toward the end. And this little boy was homeschooled. Now to our next story. <laughs> now, if they have been to a public school... Public school so-and-so from such-and-such such, a district with such-and-such such an administrator with such-and-such such prestige. Homeschool. But that is one of the ways God confounds the mighty. I'm convinced. I really am. It is amazing how God will take at particular times, not always, but He'll take Christians who have faithfully followed Christ and confound the mighty. And that's sort of what you see here with Daniel. Now, verse 27. So Daniel answered. The king is incredulous. He is shocked. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, Oh, and this is great. The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, that's another word for the Chaldeans, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare the king. Now, king, I'm not going to raise my voice when I say this, but these liberal, liberal clergymen that you've got among your Babylonian sages, these horoscope writers that you've got, these palm readers and crystal ball readers, they don't know anything. They're not able to do what you want them to do. It's a wonderful, godly way to answer. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Now, this is not a rebuke. He's simply saying man can't do what only God can do. But, verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. An unabashed, unashamed, uncompromising, simple, blunt, bold statement that upholds the true and living God and the fact that He speaks. That's what that is. There is a God of heaven who reveals secrets. Isn't that an amazing thing that you can say? 
You know, you are confounded about where you're going to be for eternity, but there's a God in heaven who supremely in Christ and in His Word written will tell you about your future. He wasn't embarrassed about the Word of God. You believe the Bible? Well, yeah. I don't want to be linked with these fundies, but not Daniel. There's a God in heaven who speaks. You need to have that kind of boldness before a watching world. He upheld the word of God. And he says, this God has revealed, again verse 28, what will be, he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon the bed were these. Latter days means farthermost part of days. I'm not going to tell you just what's going to happen in the near future, but for a lengthy period, ultimately in the gospel age, now he's going to begin to unfold the events of that night. Now you've got to imagine what this king had going through his mind. He'd had a series of dreams, or one very vivid dream, but he knew what that dream was. He knew so specifically what that dream was that he was waiting for people to tell him what it was so he could say, Amen, that's right. And now you've got this Jewish kid who wouldn't eat at the king's table, who's the kind of oddball anyway. And he's very gracious and very kind. He's not beating the pulpit. He says, this God reveals secrets. And here's what he says. Verse 29. As for you, O king, Thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. You lay on your bed and while all was quiet, you began to think about what would become of your kingdom. Dreams represent your worries and your fears and your hopes and don't think Nebuchadnezzar didn't have them. If you are a king who's been responsible for the decimation of whole tribes and wiping out men and women and boys and girls, and you know that there are powers like carnivorous animals around you wanting to devour you, don't think that you are not anxious at night. And so Daniel reflects that as he speaks to him. And God, who alone knows, made that known to you. Here is a prophecy of what would come to pass hereafter. He who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But now he gives a disclaimer, verse 30. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes, who makes known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. It's not my wisdom, but it is God's. But it is in order that the interpretation may be known to the king. This is the goodness of God speaking so that He might preserve the life of His own people first and then subordinately the lives of others. This is a picture of, if you will, the church through Daniel using its gifts, in this case, revelation for the good of others and is a model of the way we speak to the world. Notice the language that he uses again. This secret's not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. We're not better than anyone else because we have a Bible. And I hope you don't communicate that. You know, some people can beat others over the head with their knowledge of the Bible. That's not the way you do it. In humility, you say, God has spoken in His Word. And God has given these things that we might know His will, how we might glorify and enjoy Him. You, O King, verse 31. Now we get to the interpretation proper. Daniel says he knows the dream. Now he's going to get to the dream itself in verses 31 on. Here's the dream and then the interpretation. You, O king, were watching and behold a great image, a great statue. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and its form was, here's a good use of that word that's so misused in our culture, it was awesome. It was a statue. It was a statue of a man. It apparently was shimmering and awesome. It was gigantic. What I think of when I think of what that must have been like is on the full screen when the great big, not the little drones that were sent out, but the great big real thing in close encounters of a third kind, that massive flying saucer, it looked like Los Angeles, superimposed on New York City that came over that place. Awesome. You're just, and that's the way it was, the dream. Okay, so he said, this is an awesome thing that you saw. This image's head 
was a fine goal. This is how specific Daniel could be. The king would have seen it as yellow. Daniel said its head was a fine gold. Its chest and its arms, silver. Its belly and thighs, bronze. Its legs of iron. Its feet, partly of iron and partly of clay. The head is gold. The upper part of the torso, the middle, is silver. The lower middle part of the torso is brass. The legs are of iron and the feet are of iron and clay. Now think about this for a minute. You go from gold to silver to brass to iron to iron and clay. Notice that there is decreasing strength in these kingdoms. The place that ought to be the strongest, the feet, is the weakest. Iron and clay. The head is of gold. It is grand. Now what's even more amazing in verses 34 and 35, you watched while a stone was cut without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. I say this respectfully. That's what it was like for me to see the first tower of the World Trade Center go down. That's exactly what it was like. Things just came crashing down like chaff from a summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Stone cut without hands strikes the image at the feet, demolishes it, the elements blow away, the stone expands and fills the earth. That's not the kind of dream people have every day. So it must have been amazing when he could be that specific. And notice, 50% of what Daniel had to do was already done. He told the king, that's what your dream was. Now the interpretation. Verses 36 to 45. This is the dream. Now we'll tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a, 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 a. You are, not the, you are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. That puts Nebuchadnezzar in his place. Nebuchadnezzar was the first real world empire king in recorded history. Egypt had its pharaohs, but they really weren't world empires. Assyria had its empires, but there was no one king that was dominant, but Nebuchadnezzar was. Hanging gardens of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, world empire, the known world. And he's honest. You are a king among kings. But Nebuchadnezzar, the God of heaven, has given you that kingdom, power, strength, and glory. God sets up kings. I wonder if that's what court preachers say to the President of the United States when they speak to him. Remember, Mr. President, we respect you as we are to respect those in authority. But don't forget, it's God that gives you power. And you are His servant. And you are to be a minister of good in the earth. God sets up kings. He makes them His ministers for good. And He brings them down. God made you, Nebuchadnezzar, to be a king among kings, an absolute world leader. You are that head of gold. And wherever the children of men dwell or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven. He's given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. It is your empire. You are its representative head. But don't ever forget that God has given you that power. Basic message that all in authority need to hear. You would make that message known to your representative, your senators, anyone in authority. Whatever authority you have comes from God. The powers that be are ordained of God. 
And so Daniel, in an Old Testament context, says that to the king. Not arrogantly. And folks, you don't need to be arrogant about the truth. The wrath of man doesn't work the righteousness of God. Tell people the truth. And there's a little register that God calls conscience, that we call conscience, that God has put in the heart. And people in their heart of hearts know that that is true. You are that head of gold. Now there's a cue in here. If Nebuchadnezzar, as a real king, representing a real empire, is the head of that statue, then you can pretty well guess that the upper part of the torso, the lower part of the torso, the legs and the feet, are going to represent at least other empires. So there's clues right in the text that we're dealing with historical empires. Now verse 39. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. The upper middle of the torso, that is the second kingdom that would come, a kingdom of silver, representing the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. The Medo-Persian kingdom. It was the Persians who actually, under Cyrus, vanquished the Babylonian Empire, were quickly united with the Empire of the Medes. So we call it the Medo-Persian Kingdom, 539 B.C. The upper middle of the torso took power. Cyrus conquered the city of Babylon. That is the silver part of the statue. Then a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. The lower middle or third kingdom, which is of brass or of bronze, represents the Greek Empire. 331 B.C., there was the defeat of Persia by... Who defeated Persia? Alexander the Great. Exactly right. And there's a further description of this. Chapters 7, 8, and 10 are going to develop the upper torso, lower torso, silver, brass, or bronze kingdom. Verses 40 through 43. What do you think the fourth kingdom is going to be? Anybody know history that well? Rome, sure, the fourth kingdom is the Roman Empire, verses 40 through 43. Now remember that Daniel is prophesying this hundreds of years before Rome would even be known as an empire. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And that's significant because of this little stone that's going to come. Iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. Speaking now of the Roman Empire, 200 to 133 B.C., Rome swallowed up Greece like an ancient Pac-Man, swallowing up all of the remnants of Alexander the Great's empire. This was a kingdom of iron that broke in pieces all of its opposition representing absolute rule, rule with a rod of iron. The Pax Romana from about B.C. 30 to A.D. 180 was the mark of Roman government. They had crushed effectively almost all of their adversaries, although there were still local skirmishes, and they were known as that place that had crushed everything. Now verse 41, Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom will be divided. Yet the strength of the iron will be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. Kingdom would be divided, as the Roman Empire was under Diocletian in the late 3rd century Anno Domine. There was an eastern part of the empire, a western part of the Roman Empire. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, So the kingdom will be partly strong and partly fragile. Because if you've ever tried to mix iron and clay together, it doesn't work very well. These are not things that naturally mix. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. There would be a government under a mixture of the peoples. At that time, In the 3rd century, the 4th century, Anno Domine, there was an attempt to fuse the Roman and the Germanic cultures as part of a waning Roman Empire. And that led to a decay and an eventual destruction of Rome in the 5th century. You could not meld together 
with various peoples, different types of culture. And as a result, it was a literal iron mixed with clay in a kingdom sense. Now remember, this is a prophecy of what's going to come over a thousand year period. You've got Daniel in the 600s. The Roman Empire would collapse in the 400s A.D. That's a thousand years of history in symbolic form. That's not the millennium, incidentally. But about a thousand years. About a millennium of history that is spoken of. But, this was a statue of a man. It was one statue. And the point is, it was really one empire. Whether it was Babylon, or Medo-Persia, or Greece, or Rome. It was an empire that focused on man. Hence the statue, the shimmering image of a man. Even as the Tower of Babel, or Babel if you want to pronounce it that way, except it's not Babylon, it's Babylon, Tower of Babel. The king said, let us make a name for ourselves. And that's what the kingdom of the world is. We will make a name for my family. We will make a name for our man-made religion. We will make a name for our political system. But we will make a name for ourselves. It's all one and the same, folks. It is the statue of man. But that's not the finale of the dream. Verses 44 and 45, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Now you ought to mark that phrase. And in the days of these kings. What kings? Well, the kings that are referred to are the kings of, at this point, the Roman Empire. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to another people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces. The what? The iron? Why, it was the iron that broke in pieces everything else. No, no. The little stone broke in pieces. The iron and the bronze the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. In the days of these kings, a kingdom will be set up. Now your friendly local dispensationalist will say, having read his or her books, that this is speaking of something future to us. Daniel's not speaking of a thousand years of history from his point on consecutively. There's a big old gap in there. And this is something that's going to happen post-A.D. 2002. The kings equal ten toes. These are the nations of a revived Roman Empire. I'm sure for many of them today, a revived Roman Empire that uses the euro dollar, the way our friendly local dispensationalists think. Christ will return. He will destroy them and set up a millennial kingdom or an earthly rule. Now, there's a couple of problems with that view, at least. Number one, there's no mention that these toes were kings. They were all part of the fourth empire. Second, is the image wasn't smitten on the toes anyway. It was smitten on the feet. It was smitten on this thing that represented the Roman empire. The proper view that you might give to your friendly local dispensationalist is, during the time of these empires... God will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. During the time of these empires, God is going to give a stone made without hands. In other words, it is not a human kingdom. It is not in any sense formed by man which the image of man represents. And it will consume all these others and, under, and will abide forever. Now how... Do we as Christians understand that? Daniel's prophesying many, many hundreds of years before us and even before Christ. Well, let me suggest that when you hear in the latter days of those kings, you might think of Luke 2 and verse 1. And it came to pass 
in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, the emperor of the legs of Daniel's statue, that all the world should be taxed. And Joseph went up from Galilee to be registered with Mary, who was with child, a little stone that was formed without human hands. For that which was begotten in her and gestated in her was of the Holy Spirit. Not even Joseph was the human father of Jesus. little stone made without hands. Would you not think of John the baptizer? And remember, it is not John the Baptist. It is one who baptizes. John the baptizer who said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, not of man, the kingdom made without hands, is at hand. Would you not think of 1 Peter 2 and verses 4 through 8? A living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious Chosen by God, not made with human hands. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You see, if you don't build your life on Christ the stone, you will be crushed by Him. And there's no iron of this earth that will not be crushed by Him. The kingdom would be broken in pieces and blown away. Matthew 21 and verses 42 to 44. The kingdom of God will be given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. A nation of believing Gentile and believing Jew called the church. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to power, to powder. Here is a prophecy of the kingdom of Christ that was brought in with Christ's coming at the very peak of the Roman Empire. A prophecy very literally, I would suggest, fulfilled. A kingdom of which you were a part when you were in Christ. It was a fascinating confirmation. Having done my master's work in history and undergraduate work in history, I love to read these things and compare them with what secular historians say about the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. Here are some, just some statements at random, secular textbooks. One textbook said, After Nebuchadnezzar's death, Chaldean power soon crumbled. Isn't that an interesting word? Plagued by dynastic troubles and civil wars, the Hellenistic kingdoms, the kingdoms of the Greeks, begun by Alexander the Great. Plagued by dynastic troubles and civil wars, the Hellenistic kingdoms soon began to crumble. Another writer, the Roman Empire crumbled in the West. Another textbook, following the devastating invasions which overwhelmed the western half of the Roman Empire, a powerful new agency moved into the gap left by the Caesars. During the centuries which followed the warning of the waning of the followed the waning of the classical world, it was the Christian church. This was a secular text, incidentally. It was the Christian church which played the dominant role in the affairs of Europe. And that was in a secular textbook that had as its chapter title The Triumph of Christianity. Isn't that interesting? how the world itself must acknowledge what God has already said. That's why don't be defensive about what the Bible says. When we understand what it says, that's hard enough. But when you understand it, don't be defensive. God makes foolish by His Word the wisdom of this world. A kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The dream was certain and the interpretation thereof was sure. Truly, this was the Word of God. Look at the finale very quickly. And then we'll draw this to a close, the second session this morning. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face. Nebuchadnezzar rendered to Daniel the homage that was due to God alone. He prostrated himself before Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering and an incense to him. 
This would, of course, be pagan worship, an oblation or a worship to Daniel. Now, if that's what the king wanted done to Daniel, pray tell, what is the world going to do before Christ? This is a man who simply spoke what was going to come. And it was so true to Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This king of kings prostrated himself before Daniel and said, no sacrifice to me. Give it to him. What will it be like when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? See, the Bible gives little sparks of what's going to happen at the last day, and this is one of them in the image that's given. Verse 47. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is... Now, he doesn't say the God. He says, Truly your God is a God of gods, a Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. It's a confession, but it's not what we would call a true, in our day, a Christian confession. He says, this is a God among the gods. This is a Lord of kings. This is a revealer of secrets. See, the world will be very happy to listen to your God. Now, see, here's the other side of coming to the world with constructive alternatives. The world will say, oh, isn't that neat? You've got a great formula to help me with my addiction. You've got a great way to help me raise my children. You have a great way to help me be economically prosperous. Isn't that great? So all these gods up there, you've got one who really has got a knack for doing it in this way. And of course the world loves that stuff. Because then they can have their little Hindu shrine of all their gods and they'll pack yours in there too. God says, I'm not going to have it that way. I am a jealous God. And you'll have no other gods before me. And my friends, may I suggest to you, that's the challenge in our culture today. You know, I really thought September 11th, people are going to see Islam as a religion. I did not say Muslims as people. Most Muslims don't. You know more about what Islam believes than most poor Muslims. But people are going to see what Islam really stands for, and it really does stand for the destruction of infidels. Just read the Quran. And I thought, the world's going to look at that, and they're going to say, no way do we want anything to do with this religion. Why, Christianity is vastly superior. Not so. How are we going to get along with these people? Now, one thing we're definitely not going to do is be exclusive about our religion and say there's only one way to God. And you make clear in the workplace or in school, lovingly, you don't need to be arrogant. Arrogance is condemned in the Word of God. There is only one way to know the true and living God. And I suggest some of you are going to get in big trouble. So see, Nebuchadnezzar was willing to have this God among many, but not have that God only. Verses 48 and 49. Then the king promoted Daniel. Now this does not mean if you're faithful to the Lord you're going to get a promotion, but sometimes that does happen. But at least here it did because God had a purpose to preserve His people. And see, God will promote you if that's going to serve the purpose of building His church. So that's why you don't go here and say, oh, if I'm faithful to the Lord and I speak of Him in the marketplace, soon I will be the CEO of the company. Well, if that's the Lord's purpose in building His church, it will be. But that's His purpose. Here it was His purpose. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over... I love this, over all the wise men of Babylon. Can you believe it? This fundy became president of Babylon's university. He's chief over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel petitioned the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Notice again the words that's used here at this point. It is the Babylonian terms. You can figure out why. He set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because it's the king who did it. He used the Babylonian names over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. He was the advisor, chief of staff, to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is exalted. Daniel rendered, was rendered homage. The king made a confession. Daniel was promoted with the wealth as the king had promised. Daniel and his friends were protected and blessed. But the irony 
is that Daniel served to illustrate the very thing that he prophesied. He became an embodiment of the very thing that he prophesied. The church, in the person of Daniel, comes before the king with the word of Christ. Even as the Apostle Paul is told, you must be a witness at Rome. I must make my appeal to Caesar. The word speaks to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king bows down. The church is protected and blessed and even extended. Daniel becomes a picture of what it prophesied. O king, that little stone sent down from the God I represent is going to triumph over all the kingdoms, including yours. Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Daniel was, as it were, number one at that time in the kingdom. Palm Sunday, the king comes to his people lowly and sitting on a donkey. He's a humbled king who would conquer the greatest enemy of man by dying on a cross five days later. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it by the cross. Here was a little stone made without hands, that smashed man's greatest enemy on the cross. And what's the result? Look at Zechariah chapter 9 and verses 9 and 10. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. That's gospel peace. His dominion shall be from the sea to sea. That is a dominion in the human heart. And from the river to the ends of the earth. And my friends, I'm enough of a fundy that I really believe that. Christ made peace through the cross and His peace is meant to extend unto all of the nations of the earth. And the World Christian Encyclopedia that came out about a decade ago, it said during the 20th century, Christianity became the first truly universal religion in world history. At the time, persecution was the greatest. The Christian church grew the most. The first truly universal religion in world history. The stone that smote the image became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. The nations that don't serve Christ will, like these empires, be utterly wasted. What's God's purpose? It is that Christ be that victorious by the ministry of the Gospel through the church. Brothers and sisters, we have very largely lost the sense of that victory in our culture. And I don't care what your millennial view is. Any millennial view ought to be able to appreciate this. God says my gospel is my power unto salvation to all those who believe. You know where that was written? It was written in a book called the Book of Romans. Paul was going to the bastion of world empire in his day and the seat of the empire of the iron legs. And Paul went and said just what Daniel did in so many words, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. When I go to Rome, I go with the gospel that is God's power unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek People will say in so many words today, we need to wait for Jesus to come back and set up His millennial kingdom. There's no use polishing doors on a sinking ship. Wait for Jesus to come back and be with us. My friends, what's the Great Commission? Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them, for lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. We're going to wait for Jesus to come and be with us? Lord, please save just one. Or people saying, well, you know, I heard this in Franklin Square many years ago. No, Pastor, don't get too excited about evangelism. Well, we are. 
These are all Roman Catholics and Jewish people around here. That was said by an elder of an Orthodox Presbyterian church. Like the doubtful Israelites, Numbers 13, we're not able to go up against these people. They're stronger than we are. And it's just what Christians say today. Look at how powerful the world is. They control the TV. They control the Internet. They control mass media. Look at Ted Turner. He's got to be the Antichrist. All the power he's got. And just like the Israelites, ah, there's giants in the land. And our Lord says, how long will you reject me? How long will you not believe in me? Truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. I want you to look with me in page 9 of your syllabus. See, sometimes Orthodox Presbyterians get real bothered about this. You know, Wait a minute, that's your post-millennialism coming up. I said, whether you're pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, or pan-mill, or ag-mill, or whatever it would be, Agnil is, I don't know what kind of millennial view I have. You're an Orthodox Presbyterian, you need to believe this. The larger catechism is one of our standards. Larger catechism question number 191. Alan, when you get done with your people memorizing the shorter catechism, you can put out cards for the larger catechism and start memorizing that. You'll have to charge about $40 for cards for all that. Westminster Larger Catechism 191. What do we pray for in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? This is what Orthodox Presbyterians are supposed to pray. In the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan. Yes, that's the power of the world. The Reformers understood what it was to be in a world system that was full of iniquity, even if they didn't have a TV to prove it to them. Acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. Do you pray like that? Oh Lord, please save one. Please just rescue us out of this mess. The gospel propagated throughout the world. The Jews called. The fullness of the Gentiles brought in. The church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances, purged from corruption, countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate, that the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed and made effectual to the converting of those that are yet in their sins. It doesn't say, this pr- Lord, save your elect. Please, if you're going to pray like that, don't waste your breath. Lord, there are people in their sins. They are dying in their sins. Change them. Change their hearts. And the confirming, comforting, and building up of those that are already converted, that Christ... Now, here's that dominion that will never end. That Christ would rule in our hearts here and hasten the time of His second coming and our reigning with Him forever. And that He would be pleased so to exercise the kingdom of His power in all the world is may best conduce to these ends. That's why Daniel was made chief in the gate. Because it best conduced to the end of God to establish His kingdom. Not because you're going to be made a great political leader if you follow the Lord faithfully. And brothers and sisters, we are obliged as a church to make every effort to see that this gospel army advance in all of the earth and that Christ's enemies are defeated by the power of the gospel, not by the power of iron. Because, see, the gospel crushes iron. Why do you want to use an inferior weapon? Why do you want to use iron to crush iron? It is the gospel that is even more powerful than that. And especially to young peoples and families, something you can discuss tonight. A question to ask. How can I bend and shape and use my life and my family's lives to see the kingdom of Christ advanced? How can we use our gifts? How can we use our homes? How can we give our time? How can we pray that we might, by example, by word, by books, by literature, by training, by whatever it would be, wherever the Lord would put us, be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ wherever we are and not be embarrassed about it? And say to a bankrupt world, Here there are riches in the repository of grace, Christ Jesus.
Folks, God needs to dip us into His Word and scrub off all of our remaining unbelief. There's too much hesitancy in me and in you and in all of us about the power of the Gospel. I'm having to learn that in New York City and in Long Island where we're not nearly as bold as we ought to be, but we're learning what it is to go to a pagan people and not blink and say, you know, we believe the Bible that tells us of a real Lord Jesus Christ who can really save you from your sins and really take you to heaven and really deliver you from your despair. And it's amazing how God blesses that loving and bold and faithful advance of the gospel. May God scrub us of our unbelief and make us come forth with the shining armor of Christ all around us. Go forth bringing the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always, in all places, with prayer and supplication. And you watch, and you see how larger Catechism 191 is progressively fulfilled, if not in our day, in days to come, until Christ returns. Let's pray. Let's stand together and let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, thank You for the power of the Gospel. Thank You that we could see in shadowy form in the Old Testament here in the midst of a pagan empire how Your Word made a king bow. And then, Lord, let us see in the full light of the New Testament why the Apostle Paul would be burdened to go to Caesar and to Caesar's household. For You have ordained that kings and all those in authority be among the people who are saved by Your sovereign grace. Our Lord, we know that You will save Your elect, and we bless You that You will save Your elect. Our great confidence is that You will do that. But Lord, as we go out to bring the Gospel to people, let us not think first in terms of Your election. Let us think first in terms of real bankruptcy toward which Christ brings great riches. Let us think of real slavery of the heart to which Christ brings real liberation. Let us think of a real emptiness of soul to which Christ brings real fullness. And let us think of real guilt and despair to which Christ brings real no condemnation and real hope. And as we face very real death, even as Nebuchadnezzar was made to face his own mortality, may we come lovingly and boldly with the message of life. Oh God, forgive us when we've been so backward, when we have been so timorous, when we've been so defensive, or when we've been so arrogant and hateful. Let us go with the graciousness, not first of a Daniel, but with the meekness of the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking Your Word faithfully, in season and out of season. And, O oh Lord, may we be pleased to see in our neighborhoods, in the churches of which we're a part, in our own denomination, in our nation, and throughout the earth, the real power of Christ that takes servants of sin and death and makes them joyous servants of righteousness unto everlasting life. Do that, we pray, to the glory and the honor of Jesus the King, in whom we pray. Amen.